0: If you were to get an invitation by Mark Andreessen into his Menlo Park office, you might see a photograph on the wall of early banking mogul JP Morgan. Andreessen might tell you that he admires JP Morgan for his ability to build a long-lasting institution, which also has his name on it. And it's the sort of homage you'd expect from a master of the universe type like Andreessen. The Netscape founder, of course, put his own name on a much younger financial institution, Andreessen Horowitz. So what kind of legacy is Andreessen and his firm building for itself? What is the state of Andreessen Horowitz? Those are some questions we're posing on this episode of The Information 411. I'm Corey Weinberg. The Information recently published a deep dive headline inside Andreessen Horowitz's Rise. My colleague Kay Clark will join me to discuss in this episode. Of course, recent listings of Coinbase and Airbnb, as well as the upcoming IPOs of Instacart and Robinhood, as well as a slew of investments in that one little app called Clubhouse, have given Andreessen Horowitz new relevance. Then we discuss a story about one of the most classic tensions in startup land. Do quote unquote visionary founders actually want to go public? My colleague, Kevin McLaughlin, will join me to discuss a future story he just published. There's investor pressures, employee pressures, C-suite dramas. It's worth reading and listening to. First, let's get to Kate and talk Andreessen Horowitz. Andreessen Horowitz, or A16Z as it's known, is up there with Sequoia, Excel, and Founders Fund as one of the most recognizable names in venture capital. But over the years, a nagging question has hung over the firm. Does its financial performance as a firm really live up to its big reputation? The Information's Kate Clark was one of the reporters that dug into that question in recent weeks, and she joins me now. Hello.
1: Hey, how's it going?
0: It's all right. Um, so you've been on the show a bunch recently talking about Fintech and the rapid pace of investments of Tiger Global management. Um, now we turn to Andreessen, who is also investing in a at a at a torrid pace. Uh, first, let's take a little bit of a step back because you cover venture capital, you cover startups, you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. What do entrepreneurs usually think of when they think of A16Z?
1: And you said it already. They're they're known first and foremost for being one of the best top venture capital firms. But I think second to that, second to their their global reputation, they're they're known for their somewhat celebrity founders, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz, the, who are both former entrepreneurs who had you know multi billion dollar exits um, at early internet companies, and then came together to form Andreessen Horowitz. So there's there's that piece of it. And then second is the platform model Andreessen Horowitz pioneered over a decade ago when they founded the firm. And what that means is, in addition to a check that they give founders, they will provide them with recruiting experts, sales experts, marketing experts, security experts. They'll connect the people in their portfolio to founders that they backed uh, years prior. It's this Hollywood talent agency model that you know they they really brought to venture capital and since they they did that um 12 or 13 years ago we've seen other firms kind of follow in their footsteps
0: and i feel like the firm has also always had its fair share of skeptics um i feel like because they are maybe more out there they've built a big reputation they put more of a target on their back. They elicit maybe some eye rolling or some, some back chatter from, from others in the Valley. What is that side of, of their reputation?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely true. I would say in the more recent years and actually maybe throughout their entire history, I don't know some of that is before my time covering venture, but they have been known for paying really high prices for companies and therefore running up valuations in Silicon Valley. Um, they they have long kind of said, you know, they don't concern themselves so much with entry multiples. So, you know, they're not going to worry about the fact that a valuation might be, you know, 50 to 100x current revenues. They are much more concerned with the future, with future growth prospects, with with will this company become a trillion dollar company. And while a lot of VCs may say that that's, that's also their philosophy, I think this is something that we've seen. Andreessen do from the beginning is is be willing and being comfortable paying high prices. And now in this market, you know, you're seeing every company has kind of high prices. So it's, it's, it's really interesting to see how Andreessen has adapted. And we can talk about this more. But I think one of the ways in which they have adapted is by doubling and tripling down on their best companies.
0: Right. And I think you all point out in your story that one key recent example of this was of is of course Coinbase which had a monster direct listing last week and gave Andreessen Horowitz one of the biggest returns in VC history what did that investment tell us about the firm's strategy
1: Andreessen General Partner Chris Dixon um you know invested very early in Coinbase and Andreessen Horowitz continued to invest in the company over many years, including during you know the so called crypto winter when nobody really wanted to invest in crypto or blockchain companies because people sort of thought bitcoin's heyday was over and it wasn't really going anywhere, so you know people do give Andreessen Horowitz you know a lot of um, flack for running up prices or being sort of anti media or having you know politics that they may not agree with or whatever it may be but I think it's sort of undeniable the the success that they've had with Coinbase. I mean, you just mentioned it was one of the largest VC stakes in history. I think the firm is netting about $11 billion from their investment. And that could rise or fall depending on the performance of the stock. But it's pretty remarkable. So I think, you know, you kind of have to give them kudos for that because they did stand by a company that a lot of people were very skeptical of for a long time.
0: And they seem to be emboldened by these potential exits, you know they keep raising bigger and bigger funds and investing at a a more furious pace, as you point out I, I think in your story, you said that the firm is making multiple deals per week, which raises the question: Can startups handle all this cash?
1: yeah, yeah, I think it's it's a question that I ask sources, investors, founders all the time, like you know, say if I'm interviewing a company that just has raised 400 million dollars in the last year, I'll say, well, "Why do you need to raise that much money?" And and there's a spectrum of answers. I think from, well, why not take 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 the capital now when it's cheap and easy to come by, and not knowing what's ahead, especially after going through something like the pandemic. And other companies, you know, they're they're growing faster than ever. It's easier to scale a company now than ever, and they're using that money to sort of quote unquote hyper hyper-scale, hyper-blitz-scale, whatever you want to call it. Hyper-blitz,
0: everything. Yeah,
1: hyper-blitz, exactly. But on the other end of that, as investors, you know, one of their favorite investor quotes is that more startups die of indigestion than starvation. And that really begs the question, are we going to see a generation of companies kind of wipe out because they raise too much money? I mean, I, we will see losers. And I think it's just a matter of time before we know who those losers are and why that happened.
0: I think your story, you know, at least made me realize that, look, this is a firm that is probably more confident than ever. It it probably was not lacking for confidence before, but, you know, they're finally coming into a period where they've had some pretty significant exits and and know that more are coming. So there's a bit of I think you took us inside of the swagger a little bit. Yeah. And I I encourage everyone to read the story.
1: There will be many more stories to come, but I think this story is a great way in, especially if you aren't as familiar with the firm's history and, you know, kind of curious about the direction that they're going.
0: Kate, Thanks for doing this and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Boston-based artificial intelligence startup DataRobot played a key role in helping the U.S. government understand the behavior of the coronavirus and how it spread a noteworthy startup accomplishment, but that didn't stop its C-suite from plunging into the kind of messiness and politics that often plagues hot startups. Kevin McLaughlin wrote a piece this week on some of the drama that unfolded at DataRobot, and he joins me now. Hey, Kevin. Hi, Corey, how's it going? As we often have to do with some of the AI, cloud computing, machine learning type of startups that you often take us inside, Let's explain a little bit about the business of DataRobot before jumping into the drama. What does DataRobot do? What's its, its kind of key product?
2: Yeah, so DataRobot was one of the first companies to uh, see the opportunity for a type of software called automated machine learning. And basically what this means is the, uh, the software allows companies to take their data or business units within a company to take their data and put it in the hands of non-data scientists and enable them to build machine learning models as data scientists do. And so basically, if you're a company and you don't have any data scientists and you can't afford to hire them, you can use DataRobot to do that work. Uh, You can also, if you have a couple of data scientists, you can use data robot software to augment their capacity uh, and, and output more uh, end results.
0: And its customers are, are big banks, the U.S. government, you know, companies or uh, entities that, are, that have these kind of big data needs but are often behind the curve a little bit potentially.
2: Well, I think one of the reasons investors are so enthusiastic about data robot and the company has such a high valuation is the total addressable market is huge. It's basically any company that generates a lot of data. And, of course, that means pretty much every company out there across many different industries. So, yeah, that's one of their chief attributes is, is, is the broad appeal for their software.
0: Right, that, that big TAM and big data, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of promising things there. And, and we should note it, it raised money over the years from uh, new enterprise associates, Sapphire Ventures, Altimeter, and, and also some big companies like Hewlett Packer Enterprise and Cisco. So this went from obviously fledgling startup to nine-year-old company with, uh, where the, the clock is kind of ticking. Um, investors, employees, everyone usually around this time starts pushing for a company to go public, especially in this really hot IPO market. This created some tension with CEO and founder Jeremy Akin.
2: What, what did you learn? In the course of reporting out this story, I, I, did, I heard from many different people who worked at Data Robot who basically revered Jeremy Aiken, uh, especially the data scientists and the engineers within the company, because this, and you, you hear the term visionary CEO a lot, and I think it gets overused, but Jeremy is definitely in that mold. One of the things that he did that really kind of set up Data Robot for success is acquiring several smaller startups along the way to fill in gaps in the process of creating machine learning models and automating that process. The other thing is he always kind of was able to anticipate what would be important in AI generally in the commercial AI space. One example is this concept known as AI explainability. Uh, What this means is uh, machine learning models and algorithms, sometimes that they are uh, put into applications, and it, it emerges later that they're reinforcing things like uh, racial and gender bias, which uh, has been a problem with facial recognition technology. Jeremy Aiken led DataRobot in that direction, and they have uh, an offering in that area, which again is a visionary move for for a startup. So uh, to answer your question, I mean, this guy definitely had a lot of uh, Technical abilities. And, and, you know, in that regard, he led Data Robot very well. Things didn't go as well on the business side. So, this
0: to me, as you laid out in this story, and I think you pointed this out as well, really seemed to evoke a lot of tech tensions between investors and their visionary quote unquote CEOs. Travis Kalanick of Uber being perhaps the prime example, um, as well as some, some lower profile ones like Bob Muglia of Snowflake. Um, you write that Jeremy Aiken was pressured by data robots board to resign this year. What happened?
2: So there were basically two main reasons. One was that as data robot, uh, data robot grew older, attracted more funding and the valuation rose employees understandably started saying, hey, you know, when are we gonna IPO? When are we gonna go public? And over time, Jeremy kind of grew wary with these questions. One of the things is he did not actually, he, he had a different timeline for taking the company public and it did not match up with what the investors wanted or the employees. Uh, one of the reasons was, like Travis Kalanick said uh, years ago, uh, Jeremy didn't want his employees to be distracted and thinking about the stock price. He wanted them to be focused on data robot and not, you know, counting their money, which uh, you know, I imagine this happens quite a lot in in other startups.
0: It it does. Yeah, I mean like I I just talked to a CEO, a uh, CEO the other day who who I asked him like, "Why aren't you going public? Like, you seem to have enough revenue to do so." And he was like, "I don't want to outsource my HR department to the stock market. Like, I, like I know employees are going to be watching that stock price. And it, I think it's a fairly common CEO refrain.
2: And then the other big issue was, uh, Jeremy, uh, according to my sources, he had a dim view of the sales function generally. And over the years at DataRobot, when they launched their first commercial product in 2015, they were very early to this market. And in some ways, they helped create and shape this market. And so Obviously, in the early years, uh, you can't just go out and sell companies something that they don't really know that they need yet. And so the sales cycles early on were quite long. And actually, that issue persisted all the way up until 2019, when in another story that uh, Amir Friday reported last year, he, he reported that their data robot sales and marketing expenses were quite high relative to their revenue. Jeremy would clash with sales uh, and sometimes he would criticize sales teams in meetings. It was well known internally that he basically all the non data science functions uh, and non non engineering functions he, he didn't really have a high opinion of. And so over time these issues grew and DataRobot, in the beginning of 2020, hired uh, a chief operating officer, Dan Wright, from a company called AppDynamics, which uh, is a subsidiary of Cisco. Uh, AppDynamics is a very different kind of company. They sell software for measuring the performance of cloud applications. Uh, but DataRobot brought in Dan Wright to basically run the sales side and enable Jeremy to not have to worry about sales as much and you know focus on data science and engineering. But that didn't really work. Uh, according to my sources. And so the, the frictions between Jeremy and sales continued. And at one point, some of the senior leaders uh, in sales had decided that they had had enough and they weren't quite sure if the, you know, this wasn't what they signed up for at Data Robot. And so uh, eventually this became an issue where th- there was a threat to the, the future business of Data Robot. And, uh, and that's ultimately what led to Jeremy's departure.
0: Yeah, I mean, you wrote that the tensions with the sales team were pretty extreme, that Aiken's quote quote, Aiken's attitude toward the company sales team seemed to border on disdain. Um that's that's pretty
2: extreme. Well, the irony, you know, the great irony, Corey, is that you know, we've previously reported that Data Robots revenue in 2019 was 85 million. They had a great year last year. Sales were around 160 million, as we reported, and so you're talking about a company that, at the outset of the pandemic, had layoffs because uh, it was concerned about you know, what, the, what the pandemic was going to do to its sales pipeline and ended up coming out the other end uh, doing quite well.
0: You had a great detail in your story that data robots technology actually helped Some of the pharmaceutical companies and even the federal government deal with vaccine trials and understand the behavior of the virus so like it's important work (laughs) that they're doing oftentimes and and they seem to be doing it well but sometimes these fundamental tensions just companies can't get out of the way of them
2: the way it was explained to me was uh jeremy's very passionate about uh his country and and helping it and saw you know at the outset of the pandemic everyone Things were sort of confused and disorganized. And he said, Hey, you know, this is a data problem. This is, or this is many different data problems. And that's what we do. So why shouldn't we go and help? Some of the investors initially were skeptical about uh, earmarking a, a chunk of engineering and data science resources from Data Robot to go work, you know, essentially in a, on a volunteer basis. Uh, but it ended up uh, resulting in a more federal government business for Data Robot. And so, you could say that that decision on the part of of Aiken, um potentially created a new revenue stream for DataRobot going forward.
0: The statement that they that the uh companies the chairman of the of data robots board of directors gave you for the story was um was really interesting he he said jeremy is a visionary leader uh et cetera. Et cetera. his future entrepreneurial activities are his main focus right now uh, and given his uncompromising passion for innovation that is probably the right move for all parties right now <laughs> and meanwhile data robots is is you report is likely to go public um this year so uh, you know the story uh, you know has some drama to it but maybe everyone kind of gets what they want I, I don't know I think
2: that uh, Jeremy Aiken will definitely be back with a new company <clears throat> he's the he's got so many ideas and he's got so many projects going on that it's really inevitable that uh, you know he'll start something new so I, I think that I, I would expect to see that you know in, in the coming years or maybe even in the coming year
0: thanks Kevin thanks so much for joining us
2: okay thanks Corey
0: That's our show this week. Thanks so much to Kate and Kevin for joining me. Thank you to Ariela Markowitz for producing the 411. Have a great weekend, everybody.